If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 30. If you don't have a Bible, you can find the scripture text printed in the bulletin. Uh, You may say, we've only been in Isaiah for a handful of weeks now. We're already in chapter 30? We're going to be done with this in like three weeks. Nope. Uh, We we are kind of fast forwarding through the first 39 chapters just to give you kind of a setup. The main focus of the series is going to be in chapters 40 to 66. So we're going to slow down starting next week through the rest of the fall. Uh, But I wanted to give you some of the sort of the hors d'oeuvres, if you will, uh, that Isaiah is serving up in these first chapters. And not all of it has been, uh, you know, easy to hear, right? Not all of it has been pleasant. In fact, he's talked a lot about sin. And this morning, the text really focuses on a particular sin. Now, you might say, okay, this is the very thing I hate about church. You're always talking about sin. This is the thing I I just can't get into about Christianity. Here's what Isaiah would say, I think, if I could speak, be so bold as to speak for Isaiah. You can't be glad in grace unless you're sad in sin. You can't be glad in grace unless you're sad in sin. And so you got to kind of sit there and think about how God would assess your life. And i got to think the same about me. The sin this morning that we want to focus on is obstinance. Obstinance. Y'all ready for that? (laughs) All right. uh, Let's look, starting in uh, verse 1, chapter 30. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in zone and their envoys have arrived in Haines, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who neither bring help nor advantage, but only shame and disgrace. A prophecy concerning the animals of the Negev. Through a land of hardship and distress, of lions and lionesses, of adders and darting snakes, the envoys carry their riches on donkeys' backs, their treasures on the humps of camels, to that unprofitable nation, to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab the do-nothing. Go now, write this on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll, that for days to come it may be an everlasting witness." For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression, and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly, in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses, therefore 
your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. It's God's word. There's a lot in this passage that's, well, frankly, kind of weird. I mean, Isaiah is a poet. And the thing about poets is they, they kind of go around their elbow to get to their thumb when they're saying stuff. So there's, there's a lot in there that we're going to have to unpack a little bit, some of the images that he uses. But you probably have already picked up the main point, right? Obstinance is a major problem when it comes to our relationship with God. It always gets in the way. In fact, just think about your own life. Everybody in this room at one point or another has been frustrated by obstinance. Uh, maybe it's at work. Uh, if, if any part of your job is managing people, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, whether you're a teacher of students, uh, you're an employee of, uh, employer of employees, maybe you're just the one that collects the timesheets. I mean, it doesn't matter what you do. If you're dealing with people, aren't you frustrated by obstinance? People just have hard, stubborn necks sometimes. If you're a parent, do I even need to say it? Um, it's a joy to be a parent, uh, but there, there was a time in a couple of our kids' lives, I won't name which ones it was, uh, when they first realized that they were being strapped into a car seat against their will and nobody else was. You know, there, there comes that moment where they finally dawns on them, man, dad is strapping me into a seat. I don't want to be in that seat. Mom and dad aren't in a seat like that. Brother and sister. And when that happens, there, there's a little phase where every time you put them in the seat, they stiffen their back so much that it creates this perfect arch. You, you know what I'm talking about? The neck gets stiff, and, and you're trying, you're trying not to be abusive, but you're trying to <laughs> sort of fit them into the seat. That's obstinance. Stiff neck, arch back. Think about that this morning. Because God, when he looks at Israel, says, children, you're my children, and you've got a stiff neck. You've got an arched back. I'm trying to get you into this car seat to save your life for your safety, but you're fighting me tooth and nail every step of the way. I wonder, do you think you can do that against God? Or that you do that against God? If you look at the outline this morning, it's in the, the back part of the bulletin. I just want to answer three simple questions. First of all, what is obstinance? Second, why is it so dangerous? And lastly, how does God rescue obstinate people? What is it? Why is it so dangerous? And how does God rescue obstinate people? First of all, just simply, what is it? Uh, you, you noticed already how many times in the passage God calls Israel children, my children. And, and he's, he, you know, there's a lot of things you can say about children, many wonderful things. But one thing that's not as wonderful you can say is that they tend to have an obstinate nature and they show it so easily. Uh, but notice what God is saying. It's not as if we grow out of obstinance automatically just by getting older. That's not how obstinance goes away from someone's life. Obstinance stays. It's just we tend to figure out more socially acceptable ways of expressing it. Right? Well, we grow up into adult-style obstinance rather than childish obstinance. Uh, God is saying to Israel, you have not outgrown your childish obstinance. You may not literally be arching your back anymore, 
But in your heart, you're arching your back against me. You're refusing. This is what obstinance is. It's refusing to accept my ways because you want to go your own way. That's the basic level of what it is. It's refusing to accept somebody else's way because in my mind and in your mind, we already are set on whatever our way was. Now, underneath every other kind of obstinance, according to this passage, is the deep-seated obstinance against God that we continually show in our lives. Uh, One of my favorite stories outside the Bible is called The Pilgrim's Progress. It's a beautiful book. If you've never read it, you need to go find a Find a version you can read. It was written in the you know, 1600s, and it's kind of old King James-style language. But you can find all kinds of modern versions of it. Go read it. Right when Christian sets out to go from the city of destruction to the city of heaven, which you can get, kind of guess what the story's about just by that, right? Christian is going from the city of destruction to the city of heaven. What's it about? The Christian life. As soon as he sets out, he is confronted by a man named Obstinate. It's, it's great. It's before he even gets through the narrow gate. There's obstinate. And obstinate comes and argue, tries to argue Christian out of going to heaven, out of leaving the city behind. And he comes up with all these reasons. It's too inconvenient. It's going to be dangerous. You're probably going to not make it there. You're going to die on the way. Isn't our city comfortable as it is? And at the end, you know, Christian, because God is there with him, he's able to kind of get around all of obstinate's uh, entreaties. But often at the end of the day, not only tries himself to walk away from God's call, he tries to get other people to do it too. That's the point I want to get across to you. When there's obstinance in our hearts against God, it's going to show up in our lives, and actually it's going to be contagious. Obstinance is contagious. Obstinance makes itself appear in the actual circumstance of our lives. For Israel, it was this. I'm going to try to summarize all of the first 11 verses in a real simple paragraph here. Uh, Israel was no longer at peace. Uh, Assyria was big, and Assyria was threatening. It had already destroyed the northern kingdom in Samaria, already. It was starting to take over little small towns in Judah. Uh, The Assyrian army was gathering to come into Jerusalem. Hezekiah and those kings were absolutely terrified about this, as you can imagine. And so, what do we do when we're terrified? What do we do when we're threatened? Simple, right? We try to find a way to minimize the threat, to take away the fear and the terror. How do they do that? Instead of turning to what God is telling them through Isaiah, they turn to Egypt. You see, Egypt is a big country too, just like Assyria. It's on the south instead of the north. And so they thought, hey, let's turn to our neighbors to the south. Let's make a treaty with them. Let's make an alliance so that together we can be strong enough to get the enemies from the north from coming in and destroying us. You say, well, what's the problem with that? That sounds like smart politics. The problem with that is God told them not to do that. God had been telling them, don't ever go back to Egypt. He'd been telling them that actually for like 500 years since he delivered them out of Egypt and slavery. Don't go back there. Don't get help from there, because help from there is really not help at all. You're going to end up signing your death warrant rather than giving yourself freedom in life by going back down there. And yet, they were doing it. Uh, That's what it says there in verse uh, 2 and 3. He says, you're heaping sin upon sin because you're trying to go down to Egypt without consulting me. Did you notice that? Without consulting me. 
You look for help to Pharaoh, you look to Egypt's shade, but it's just going to become your shame, verse 3. Egypt's shame will bring you into disgrace. It's not that you know, Egypt just in and of itself is evil and you know, Israel is in and of itself good. It's that God said, trust me, not Egypt. And what the obstinance was, was, it was revealing itself in that moment where instead of learning how to wait on God, which is hard to do, right? Waiting on God is hard to do, amen? That's tough. Especially in a situation like this. Assyria looks really big and really effective. And God is saying, listen, I'm going to destroy Assyria in just a little bit. That's what God had told them through Isaiah. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is not going to even step foot in Jerusalem. Not one foot. Not one toe. He's not going to shoot one arrow. All you got to do is wait on me. Well, instead of that, they were saying, no, let's find a way. Let's find a self-made strategy to make life easier, to make life safer, to make life more comfortable. At the heart of this was a heart of utter rebellion. Now look at verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. These are really striking verses, which ought to make all of us a little bit convicted this morning. Here's what it looks like. Verse 9, these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. Listen to what they say. They say to the seers, the people who see God's word, don't see anymore. They say to the prophet, stop giving us visions of what's right. Tell us something pleasant for a change, Isaiah. Tell us some good news. Stop preaching all this gloom and doom stuff. Give us something that encourages us and excites us and makes us feel good. Then listen. I lo- this part I love, but I also hate because I see it in myself. Leave this way, verse 11, get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Now that's it right there. That's the heart of it, isn't it? Why did they want to go down to Egypt? They did not, at the end of the day, want God. The Holy One of Israel. He was too inconvenient. For unholy people like us to walk with a holy God is too uncomfortable, frankly. It, it dampens our style. It throws our agenda into shambles. You know, It takes us in on paths that we never intended or wanted to go on. It's just a little too dangerous. Just give us something pleasant, we say. That's the heart of obstinance. We often don't see it in our lives. I mean, because you know, a relationship with God is sometimes it's hard to... It's hard to quantify or get your hands around. Like, have you ever wondered, how am I really doing with God and not been able to answer that? I mean, I know I've been there. Like, I just don't know whether I'm, whether I'm close to God or not. I feel like he's far away, but I can't really tell if it's true or not. Well, well listen, Israel's example says, if you want to know how you are with God, look at your life. If you want to know whether you're being obstinate against God, Ask yourself, am I obstinate against the people God has put in my life? (laughs) They were obstinate against Isaiah, a real flesh and blood man. They were obstinate against their leaders because Hezekiah didn't have the same mind as the nation. He, he He wanted to trust God. But they were like, no, I don't want that. And listen, in our lives, when obstinance is found in our families, children to parents, when obstinance is found in our marriages... Spouses against spouses. When obstinance is found at work, I don't want to listen to my boss. I want to talk about him or her behind their back. 
it is a clear like pathway window into something in my heart. Stop confronting me with the Holy One of Israel. <laughs> you say, well, hold on. We're only supposed to bow to God, not to any man. Amen. In terms of worship. But isn't it true that when someone learns to bow before the Holy One of Israel, they also learn to be attentive to the various ways that God is trying to lead them in daily life? I mean, let me just, let me just uh, illustrate that or try to convince you of that by a story from King David's life, real quick. I read this this week in my Bible reading, and that's why it stuck out to me. Uh, David was anointed to be the future king of Israel when he was a teenager, but he had to wait because there was already a king. And that king, Saul, hated David because of it, and so started chasing him around the desert. David had to live for years in caves and foreign cities to, to get away from Saul. Several times, he had an opportunity to get back at Saul, to hurt him or kill him. And all of his men were trying to encourage David to do that. I mean, David, I mean, there's Saul right there sleeping. Why don't you just take off his head? Just like you did Goliath. And you remember what David said? It's just really good. It's really important for us to hear it. Who am I to stretch out my hand against God's anointed? That's what I'm talking about. The circumstances of your life, the people that God has put in your life relationally, aren't there by accident. They're there by God's anointing and by God's ordination, by God's ordaining it, by God's setting it out and ordering it. If I'm always arching my back inside against all of that, can I convince myself truly that I'm really submissive to God? Now, the reason why I'm trying to tell you that is because it's so easy for us this morning to sit here and think, man, I, I get it. Some people are obstinate to God. I can't believe those people. And we, we let ourselves off the hook. We can't do that. I think everybody in the room can see at least one example in a real tangible relationship where you are stiffening your neck against somebody. You're refusing to admit you're wrong. Uh, you're refusing to listen to advice. You're not even asking for advice. You're isolating yourself, right? Well, guess what, y'all? Behind that, maybe it's several layers deep, is, oh, just tell me something good, God. Stop confronting me with your holiness. Stop, stop telling me what to do. Stop setting my life this way and do it that way. Because that's the way I'd prefer to have it. Isn't that convicting? You don't just grow out of obstinance automatically. Just because you get bigger. I hope that we see that in our own lives this morning. Now, secondly, why is obstinance so dangerous? Uh, starting there in verse 12, uh, all the way to verse 17, he tries to help us see this. Obstinance is dangerous because it boasts in a strength that it does not have. That's the reason it's dangerous. Obstinance boasts in a strength that it does not have. Uh, look there at verse 12. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Now, I just want to stop there and point out, they had just said in verse 11, stop confronting me with the Holy One of Israel. God, stop being holy and stop confronting me with your holiness. The next thing God says is, okay, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. What does that tell you about God? He's going to be even what you don't let him be, <laughs> right? You might not let God be holy and, and authoritative in your life. That doesn't matter to God. God's still going to come at you with the same thing, whether you try to beg him to come at you with something different or not, because God can't change. And that's such a good thing, 
Because when we try to change God, when we try to come against God with our own will and to set aside his will, we're actually acting like we're strong when really we are extremely vulnerable and extremely weak. The only thing to remedy that is for us to know that the strength of God can never be adjusted or moved or changed. That's what God is, is coming to do. He says there again in verse 12, Because you have rejected this message, you rejected my word, and you depended on deceit and relied on depression, this sin of obstinance will become for you like a high wall. Now think about a high wall. A high wall so, communicates what? Strength. Strength. Uh, you know, security. And yet, listen to this high wall. The high wall is cracked and bulging. It collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that not that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. In other words, there won't be nothing left. Not one penny will be left. Not one stone will be left that's worth anything. When it falls, something that seems strong, something that seems secure, is revealed to be the opposite. Weak and completely insecure. That's what obstinance is. That's why it's so dangerous. It convinces us in our mind, I'm, I'm good. I'm in control of my life. I'm in control of my life. I'm in control of how I feel. I'm in control of what I do. I don't let nobody tell me nothing. I'm not, let, I'm not letting God you know, mess with certain parts of my life that I don't want him to mess with because I've got it fine on my own. And yet what we're doing is we're building a wall that is already cracked at its foundations. Uh, think about uh, that tragedy that happened down at Surfside in South Florida. Just think about that. Um, you know, obviously, people didn't take note of the fact that the thing was cracked and bulging all along. All along. And then suddenly, in a moment, how dangerous was it for, for folks to be in there? That was a tragedy with great danger for them to be in a place that they thought, this is safe. Because I mean, why wouldn't you? Uh, you? You live in a building, you think it's safe. But all the while, cracked and bulging. When I try to get my own way, I'm living in a cracked condo. It's just a matter of time. It really is just a matter of time. Uh, for some people, it comes sooner than others. But for everybody, the cracks and the bulges will eventually lead into total shattering when we try to go our own way. The second picture he gives there in verse 15 is the same, just different, so I won't spend as much time on it. He says again, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. And he says, um, you would have none of my call to repentance. Instead, you wanted to get a bunch of horses. Uh, that would be today like saying, I'm going to get a bunch of ammunition and a bunch of chariots. I'm going to build an army. And I'm going to get swift horses while I'm at it. And God says, okay, you got swift horses. Instead of using those horses to run hard into battle, you're going to use those horses to run hard away from the battle because you're going to get your tail handed to you. Right? That's what he's saying. It's the same thing. It's a pretended show of strength. Look at all the horses. Look how swift they are. But God is going to shortly turn it into what it really is, a show of tremendous weakness, a getaway car. For an army that could not stand up for itself. Now you say, well, how does this help me? Think about, okay, we've talked about how obstinance against God manifests itself usually in obstinance against other people and against circumstances. 
Think about how we normally manifest that obstinance in our lives. Uh, when someone tells me something I don't like, my wife or whoever, uh, I either tend, A, to get real demanding, right? Uh, I try to force the person to see things the way that I want to see, the way that I want them to see it. You know, I try to assert my will with words or, you know, some other way, you know, just, or just trying to force the issue. I get domineering. Or I withdraw. And I say, you don't want it my way? Well, fine. I'm going to take my ball home, and I'm going to have it my way by myself. Guess what? That's how obstinance gets expressed with people and with God. In both cases, we're pretending like we're strong. In one, it's big bad boss man, you know, or big bad boss lady. I'm going to get in here and get my will done no matter what. I'm going to steamroll people. What actually comes of that? Think about it. When you feel so strong, steamrolling everybody, what is the actual result of it? Weaker and weaker relationships. People do not want to be around you and me when we're like that. And if we're like that enough, people won't want to be around us ever. And so we thought this was going to make me big and strong and impenetrable. But really, it was cracked and bulging, ready to fall. Same thing with, with withdrawal, by the way, which is one that I, I, for me, I tend to do that one more, where I, I just, well, I just won't tell you anymore. If you're going to not like my idea, I'll just not share my idea. I'll, I'll be on my own, right? Well, what does that actually accomplish? I think it's me being strong and self-assured and just all about me and, you know, standing on my own two feet. I'm a man after all, grown man. But what does that do? It isolates me to where, again, not only maybe people want to be around me, but they can't. Because there I am off on by my lonesome building an island for myself. It seems really strong to be obstinate, but it's extremely vulnerable and extremely weak. Now, if you can think about that in human relationships, take that then to the deeper level of your relationship with God. In your life, when you say, I don't want the Holy One of Israel, when you try to demand things from God, God, why didn't you answer that prayer? When I wanted to, how I wanted to. Why don't, you do, why don't you help me get this in my life? I really want this, and I think I'm going to use it for your glory after all. Right? <laughs> right? Give it to me. What does that do? It doesn't, well, first of all, we just learned it doesn't change God, not one bit. He still comes back and says, yep, still Holy One of Israel. You didn't budge me. But guess what it does? It does change us for the worse where after a long while of doing that, we won't even be able to hear who the real God is. It'll be totally lost to us. God will become what we've invented God to be. That's a scary thing. Same thing with withdrawal. If I say, you know, I just, I, apparently I'm just not good at this religion thing. Apparently I can't get my way with God, so God doesn't listen to me apparently, so I'm just not going to pray. What does that do? Again, it doesn't change God. God is still the Holy One of Israel, but it changes you. And it changes you for the worse. The distance that you create between you and God creates a coldness, a selfishness, a smallness, a dryness, a, almost sometimes a barren desert spiritually in your life that no amount of self-effort could fix. That's sad and that's scary too. That's what God is telling Israel. Turn to Egypt if you will, but you're building a high wall that's going to crash. You think it feels strong, but it's not. Get all the horses you want to get. Get all the thoroughbreds. 
Train them as, as much as you want to train them. But because you're not willing to listen to me, it's not going to work. Thirdly, I want us to see today how God rescues obstinate people. We saw at the beginning of the, the service today, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Think about that. And that's what God tells us there in verse 18. The beautiful verse. The most beautiful verse. I was tempted just to preach verse 18. Just to cut the rest of the sermon out. But I realized it wouldn't make sense if I didn't preach what I just said, right? Because verse 18 begins with a word, yet. Uh, maybe in your Bible it says, therefore. E either way, it's the same difference. Even though we have been obstinate, even though Israel was obstinate with God, yet or therefore, God is going to be gracious anyway. God is going to come with his grace and he's going to interrupt, interrupt and intrude in the rut and the pattern of our stubbornness that we've laid down in our lives. I mean, that, that is, after all, the only way to rescue an obstinate person is to interrupt them in their obstinance. If somebody's drowning, for example, uh, and they're, you know, when people are drowning, they tend to not make the right decisions, right? They're, they're flailing around, which makes it worse. What's the only way to help that person? Is it just to yell commands at them? No, you've got to actually interrupt what they're doing. Like, you've got to jump in and literally stop them in what they're doing and set them on a different course. That's what the grace of God does to us. Or kids, if you, you, know, if you like the movie Beauty and the Beast, do you like that movie? It's a beautiful picture of this. Uh, two people who do not get along at all. And, and, they, and why should they, right? One's a beast and one's a beauty. They're opposites. Uh, and yet in the song that's the title to the movie, what does it say? They were barely even friends, but then somebody bends unexpectedly and boom, love, right? And the magic of animation makes the, the beast turn into a beauty eventually, right? To match the beauty of Belle. That's a picture of grace. That's a picture of God's grace working in your life. You were barely even God's friend. Like, in fact, you weren't God's friend. By nature, we're his enemies. And yet God, unexpectedly, surprisingly, out of nowhere, interrupted our stubbornness and took us by the hand and drew us in as friends, drew us in as sons and daughters. Yet, it says, verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Your Bible may also say the Lord waits to be gracious to you. I love either one. The Lord full of longing to show grace even to a people who are stubborn. Or the Lord waiting on those who are stubborn. It says there in, in the second part of the verse, Therefore he will rise up to show compassion. And that those two words together paint a beautiful picture of grace. God longs or waits to be gracious and then he rises up. He goes into action in order to show us compassion. He interrupts us on the course that we are on to turn us from obstinate people to people who are willing to bow the knee before the Lord. Here's what this is saying. When you refuse to wait on God, God waited on you. When you refuse to long for God and you long for everything else in the world but God, God longed for you. When you refused, when I refused to take action according to God's word, 
God took action on my behalf. He did it anyway. Uh, the grace of God in the Bible is not just God looking and saying, okay, which ones of these people are just good enough for me to come to to save? Uh, which ones are, the, are the, the, you know, the softest of the hard nuts to crack? <laughs> and I'll go find those people and save them. That's not the way grace works. Grace is always an interruption into a life that apart from grace would only lead hellward would only lead to the city of destruction all day long, obstinate going back to where it's going to get destroyed. It's grace that comes and takes Christian, wakes him up, leads him out of the city of destruction and sets him on a path to a new, in a new direction. And it wasn't because of anything that was better about Christian than obstinate. It wasn't something, I can tell you, in my own story of faith in Christ, I can't think of a single reason in myself, why God would save me and not somebody else who's not saved currently. I can't think of a single reason that I can take credit for. The only reason I can think is, man, God was super patient with me. He waited on me just like he did in the days of Noah. He waited on me just like he did with Abraham who was born into a pagan family and didn't, have, didn't know anything about God and yet God came and was patient. He waited on me just like he did David who failed him often and spurned his grace. God planted seeds in my life, even when I wasn't looking for seeds to be planted. Uh, even when I didn't want anything to do with God's way in my life, God still insisted on his way. He came to me and says, nope, Holy One of Israel speaking. Still here. Still, still leading you in the same direction I want you to go in, Stan. Don't you have that same story if you're a believer this morning? If you're not a believer, I want you to know that story can be your story. This morning, I, it doesn't matter if you're watching this or if you're here and you say, man, I, I don't know if God, my heart, is, my heart is so hard right now against God, I'm not sure he can change it. It's good for you to say that out loud because God likes to prove those things wrong when we say them out loud. Because of that simple word, yet. You're a tall tower, fallen, cracked, bulging. You're, you're horses that are used to, to run away from the battle. You're weak as you can be, and yet, you're hard as you can be, yet, here I come. Wooing you, uh, drawing you, as the Bible says, with the cords of kindness, with the cords of love. We, we know this in, in a sense this morning better than even Isaiah knew it. I mean, Isaiah knew this well because God gave it to him. It was, his, it was the message God gave through Isaiah. But we know it better because what is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus except God waiting on us and going into action for us when we were unwilling to wait on him and to go into action for him? Jesus was born into a world that did not receive him, the Bible says. That means God went first before we went. Jesus died on a cross when people were just mocking him which means God acted first before we ever were willing to act for him. Why is this important? Because, y'all, the only way to have my obstinate heart softened is to understand the God-moving-first nature of his grace, the interruption of his grace, the radical sort of intrusion. I, I could use all kinds of words. I mean, God just intrudes into our lives by grace and says, Stop! What you're doing. 
Stop resisting me. Look at how I've treated you. Stop treating me the opposite. Come to me. Turn. That's why it says in verse 15, it's in repentance and rest that your salvation is found. It's not by doing a bunch of stuff that you get saved. It's in quietness and trust that strength is found. Not in me and you trying to find the best scheme for having the best life that we can have. It's found in saying, oh God, oh God, your grace, your grace. It's more than just a song to say it's amazing, God. Because it came to me while I was an enemy, while I was wanting everything but you. It came and it says, no, you know what? You don't want me, but I want you. I choose you. And I draw you near. Isn't that amazing? Isaiah tells us, before you can be happy in grace, you've got to be sad in sin. But this morning, if you're someone who's sad in sin, which I think all of us have reason to be sad in our sin, you can be glad in grace. Because grace, it knows no wall too high. It knows no horse too swift to chase down.